Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I am became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Amen. You may be seated. Paul has had an interesting experience as he sits in prison waiting for the judgment of the Roman authorities. Epaphroditus has come to him and he has told him, I have some issues with the Colossian church. And here are some of the false teachers and this is what they're saying. And I need something from you that will help. And Paul right there writes a letter, the letter to the Colossians. And he hands it to Epaphroditus and sends him back and lets him know this is what God has revealed for them. This this letter is a kind of uh, uh, bullet, if you will, not a silver bullet, but it's a bullet that uh, Paul sends out with the intention of addressing specific issues. But in it, he does something very uncharacteristic of Paul, and that is he synthesizes, in other words, he shrinks down into concise form some of the teaching that he would like to convey. Our series, Discipling, Reproducing, is encapsulated in these verses that we're about to go through today. This block of scripture is actually the foundational principle, if you will, of discipleship, disciplers, and being ministers of the gospel. Um, In going through the written materials on this, I didn't have a whole lot of material to work with on this passage, and I told Ron about this last week as I was preparing. I was only able to come up with about 68 pages of material on these few verses. Uh, which was very disappointing because I figured I should be, well, actually I had left off about 20 or 30 commentaries. I guess I could have gone to those as well. But uh, in any case, in working through this, obviously there's a lot of people who've talked about it, and for good reason. Because, again, many ministers, pastors who have worked their whole lives in the field of ministry have taken this particular passage of Scripture as the one that they put on their wall, literally, and refer to on a daily basis. It's the guide for what they do. And I encourage you to think very seriously about sitting down sometime today or tomorrow with a piece of paper in your hand Open your Bible, take out your pencil or pen, and copy these words on a piece of paper. Write them down on a piece of paper. I've discovered that there is no better way to get involved in the scripture than by simply reproducing it in handwriting. Don't type it out on a computer. Write it down with your hand. 
it will start to sink into your heart. Now, I want to give you some hooks, if you will, to understand this passage of Scripture. And then that's going to enable us to look a little more deeply as you reflect on what we talk about today and as you continue to read this passage. I am serious when I say, as uh, Ron said, I'm giving you this block of Scripture, and I read that passage, I said, so how long are you going to be gone? <laughs> and he says, I'm only going to be gone that one Sunday. Uh, Ron, <laughs> dude, this is like a month and a half of material here, just, just in this one passage. I mean, I, I, are you going to be gone that long? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't mind it, but uh, in any case... <laughs> I, that did come out wrong, didn't it? Oh, well. <laughs> this is part of the suffering. Okay, all right. Let's move in. All right, let's move into the scripture. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, I want you to look. And I want you to read in whatever version you have, whether it's uh, NIV or NASB or ESV, whatever you've got. Go ahead and uh, open your Bible and look at that 24th verse of the first chapter of Colossians. And I want you to notice that the very first verb that he uses in opening up this passage of Scripture is what? What's the word? He does what? Rejoices. Now, what is Paul rejoicing about? What is Paul rejoicing about? Okay, Paul needs therapy, right? Right? If a, guy, if a guy is rejoicing over suffering, there must be something wrong. I mean, this is kind of like a masochistic tendency, isn't it? Now, obviously, we have to understand what's behind Paul's perception of suffering. And we have to understand why Paul is suffering in order to be able to understand what makes this attitude about suffering the way it is? Now, I know in looking at you and in knowing many of you, having spoken to many of you, I know that in your lives you have pain. There is no one in this room that doesn't. Everyone has pain. But this pain that Paul's referring to is a different kind of pain. It's not a pain related to children who are disobedient. It is not a pain related to physical ailment. It's not a pain related to disappointment. It's a pain related to persecution. Now that's very important to keep that in mind. This is the pain of persecution, the rejection of Paul's message and the rejection of Paul as the messenger. Now, in this first passage, I'm going to carry my notes around with you, with me. Uh, Paul begins saying, I now rejoice in, the, in what was suffered for you. Now, notice something. This suffering is for you. Who's the you? Anybody know? The church, right. The you is the church. Now, when you look at a church like this one, and I think it would be a fair guess to say that probably in the city of Colossae, that wasn't a tremendously huge city, 
the city of Colossae had some prominence, but it wasn't, you know, as, as big as all that. And the church in Colossae might not have been much larger than we are this morning. And in a group like this, when Paul says, I rejoice in what I've suffered for you, how is it that he suffered for them? Well, that's what we want to get into. Because there are a couple of things in this first verse that are sort of confusing. And the next phrase, right after that suffering for you, he says, for, actually in Greek the word is for, in the ESV it says and, but for I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of the church. Now he's happy to suffer. He's very happy to suffer on behalf of the church. And the interesting thing that he says as far as a justification for this suffering on the, for, on the behalf of the church is the fact that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. And that sounds like a pretty problematic statement, doesn't it? Because if any of you have hung around me long enough and you've had any of the instruction I've given on the issue of theology, you know that I'm pretty adamant about the fact that Christ's death on the cross is once for all and it is totally effective. In other words, that death does not miss anything in terms of its ability to resolve sin in people's lives, right? I mean, Christ's death was totally sufficient. So why then would Paul say that he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings? Well, it's not as ugly as it sounds. Let me kind of share with you some notes that I've come up with. But there is more to this statement. He begins by talking about Christ's afflictions, and now he's talking about his own. He's talked about Christ's afflictions earlier in uh, the first chapter. And the, the, the words, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, sounds like a very awkward statement. Well, we could all agree with that. It's not that Christ's death on the cross was lacking anything. Paul realizes that the suffering he is experiencing is really directed at Christ. Now understand something. Here's Paul. He's out here talking to these people. He's in the marketplace. He's in the synagogue. He's in with the church. He's walking in the street. He's out there in the public view. He's talking and people are hearing what he has to say. And I want you just for a moment to kind of go back to what you've heard about uh, Paul on Mars Hill when he talks to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These are the brainiacs of that time. They, they, they sit around and ponder the newest ideas. That's their gig. So these people are very deep into philosophy, and they hear Paul, and you'll notice that there are three reactions. One, what is this drivel? You know, blah, 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 blah. What, what the, what, what are you saying, and what, where, did, where did this come from? Second reaction, hmm, you know, that's pretty interesting. Never heard anything like that before. Why don't you come on back next week, and let's hear about it again. Third reaction, I'm with you, Paul, let's go. Total rejection, ambivalence, and acceptance. Three reactions. 
That was not unique where Paul went. Everywhere Paul went, he had those three reactions. People who were outright rejecting, people who were ambivalent, but, you know, willing to listen to more because they're curious, and those who accepted and were willing to start walking immediately in the path of Christ. Those that rejected his message went after him. Most often it was the Jews that were in that community that came after him. Because they knew that what he was doing, what, um, this is what they knew, they knew he was teaching heresy. That he was trying to misrepresent what God had done with the law by talking about this Jesus fellow. Those that believed said, no, this is the fulfillment of the law. This is, in fact, the Old Testament come to life. Those that were ambivalent said, I don't know, whatever, you know, I'm happy, either way. Those that went after Paul hate the message that Paul is saying. If Paul had walked in there and said, hey, look, instead of just having your tent with a flap right up in the front, how about if we make like a little, uh, you know, like a little porch on your tent with, you know, that comes out a little bit. And that that's just like six shekels more I could put that out there. You know, give you like a little entryway to walk into when you put your tent up. Does that sound cool? I don't think anybody would have stoned him for that. You know, Paul was a tent maker, right? If he'd been talking tents in the marketplace, do you think anybody would have got upset with him? No. They got upset with him because he comes out talking about Jesus Christ. That sets their teeth on edge and immediately causes them to be angry because what's happened is Paul's message has struck at the very heart of their soul, which is in disobedience to God. They hate God. They've created their idols in order to substitute for God. And here they are being confronted with that idolatry. So, when Paul gets persecuted, whether he's, you know, however they decide to respond to him, he's being persecuted not because of him, Paul. He's being persecuted because of the message of Jesus Christ. In other words, who do they really hate here? That's right. They hate Jesus. And because they hate Jesus, they're going after Paul. So Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. You see it now? They hate Jesus. They go after Paul. So what is Paul doing? He's taking the hit. For Jesus. Not that Jesus' death was lacking anything, but what Paul is dealing with is the hatred of the world for Jesus. And that is suffering intended for Jesus. Jesus isn't here. Jesus isn't with Paul walking down the street. So the people can't get at Jesus, but they could sure get at Paul. So Paul takes the hit for Jesus. And that's what he's talking about. And you know what? This is, no, this is no big shocker. Anybody that becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ and lives according to the path, to the way that he's directed you to live, I want you to know if people start rejecting you because of that, 
This should come as no shock. Jesus said, Remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they will obey yours also. John fifteen twenty. In other words, if they come at me, they're going to come at you. Because you represent me. You say the things I would say, they're coming after you. So don't be surprised if in the middle of your life you see three responses. Outright hatred, ambivalence, and those that are willing to walk with you. Okay? All right. Paul goes on, and we'll just make a quick survey of some of the stuff he went through. Uh, This is from 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger in the sea, in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides every Everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak that I do not feel weak? Who is led to sin that I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast about these things that show my weakness. In other words, I have all these people wanting to kill me, all these people wanting to hurt me, all these events that happened in my life are horrible, and besides that, I got you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> If I were one of the Corinthians reading that, I'd say, you know, Paul, that uh, wasn't particularly uplifting. <laughs> right at that, that wasn't an encouraging moment there. So, <laughs> in any case, you could tell Paul in the middle of all of this is expressing the kinds of things that happen to anyone who is sold out for Jesus. If you go on a mission... Or if you just go out in your own neighborhood or in your own apartment complex or in your own neighborhood and start knocking on doors or start talking to people, you're going to have doors slammed in your face. You're going to have people threatening to throw you off their, their, their uh, property. You're going to have people that are going to be angry, people who are going to just flat out hate you. Those that don't care and some that will accept It's a lot of physical suffering, sometimes beaten and left for dead. Now, just by the way, quick survey, um, who's been beaten and left for dead? I'm not seeing any hands here. Okay, <clears throat> anybody gotten stoned uh, with rocks? <laughs> with rocks. <laughs> okay. You gotta say that to this group of people. <laughs> I'm talking about those that were from the '60s. They all know that. All right. <clears throat> what was that famous president once said? I never inhaled. What was that? How that worked? Oh well. Anyway, the threatening words that happens to him. These threats. The Gentiles, who basically fall primarily in those three categories, you notice that when he went into Ephesus, that 
Um, he ran afoul of a guy by the name of Alexander. You remember that story, Alexander the silversmith? And they were making um, idols for Artemis because Ephesus had this the largest temple of Artemis anywhere in the world. And so they were making little idols. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, your souvenir shop. And, you know, get your silver idol of Artemis when you leave, you know, after you drop off your sacrifice, come and buy one of these, and you could have Artemis with you wherever you go. Well, that's what was making them a lot of money in Ephesus. And so when Paul shows up and starts preaching Christ and that idols are nothing, what happens? They create this huge riot and they go after Paul. Massive riot. And... It was something on the order of two hours, I think two or four hours. They sat in the stadium and shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! I'm thinking, you know, talk about repetitious verses. You know, that just, that was crazy. All right. Next thing that happens, of course, is that he faces the suffering from the false brothers. But before I get into the false brothers, one other thing that I want to mention. I don't know if all of you remember. This is kind of like a uh, uh, ancient history check here. Um, this goes way, way back. How many of you remember Reggie White and the Green Bay Packers and all of the controversy around him? See, it's all you got to have. You got to have gray hair to, to remember that. I think. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Oh, gosh. Yeah, that was a very, very long time ago, uh, Reggie White. And, of course, the the uh, more current individual, right, that was getting a lot of that kind of press, Tim Tebow, right? You know, and, and there's another guy who, trying to live for Jesus, just takes all kinds of hits from the bad press, from the bad people. And they're after him because he's so uber-religious, Right? Stand for Christ, and this is what's going to happen. You're going to take the hit. False brothers. This has been probably in the church one of the hardest things for people to deal with. And this happens to pastors all the time. You work and work and work to build relationship with people, and then for some reason, because of some event, they just turn right around and stab you square in the back. And I'm sure that some of you have also experienced that when you've made yourself vulnerable to other Christians and suddenly those Christians turn on you like a bunch of ravenous dogs and the next thing you know you're getting your heart tore out. False brothers. You notice that Paul is suffering from this same thing and it's not just because these false brothers are false but because not only do they teach bad things to the church, as in heresy and false doctrine, but they also accuse Paul of being either a liar or not an apostle or having no authority or whatever, whatever, whatever. So he's got those people on his back. Here's a guy who understands suffering. He knows what the word suffering means. He's the archetypical guy who suffers for the name of Christ. The daily concerns for the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. 
who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. One of the most painful aspects of Christian discipleship is the heartbreak. And let me tell you something. When you work with a group of people and you work and work and work and invest for years only to have those people turn on Christ, that is very disappointing. When you've opened your home, your heart, and you've poured yourself into a life and then have them just go. You know, and I can't even tell you how many tears Cindy and I have cried over situations like that. It's been very difficult. But here's the thing to take away from what Paul has been doing. Paul has never once stopped proclaiming the name of Christ, even though he's been confronted by the Gentiles, the false brothers, and those that are weak and failing disciples. He has always stood there and faced the music, if you will, and then carried on, continuing to teach. So let me just say this about that. Rebellion to the Lord hurts. It hurts the disciples' heart. Also, there is the other thing, too. The losses that just come from this. When you have people who are investing in your life and those people themselves die. Or, worse, they turn on the Lord, the disciples. That's even worse. Because those who've been held in high esteem, and we know, right, don't we? How many times we've seen people both publicly and privately who were ministering faithfully in the gospel for some time and then all of a sudden their lives turn into a personal wreck? And how many people in the church are harmed by that? I mean, this is horrible. And Paul has to deal with those too. Those that he thought had been discipled properly and had been put into places of authority inside the church. And look at what happened. There is a price to be paid for being an effective disciple. And I don't want you to be having a wrong illusion, let's put it that way, about, about being a true disciple of Jesus and really putting yourself on the line. There was a gentleman by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was born around 1906, and he died in April, very auspicious month, April 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian pastor, and I do mean a Christian pastor, not one of those liberals from Germany. He was in Germany, by the way. He was not one of those that was a liberal pastor. He was a true Christian believer. He wrote an interesting book in those last few months that were compiled together from notes that he'd written, and the title of the book is um, The uh, Cost of Discipleship. It's a very inspiring work if you want to read it. Talk about a prison epistle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had gotten himself involved with a number of people who formed a sort of a circle within the Nazi party, and in fact, had three 
very high-ranking Nazi officials in this group, and they were secretly trying to negotiate with the Allies in England. What they wanted to do was bring down Hitler and stop the war. I mean, by this point, millions of people had already died, and what they wanted to do was stop the carnage and the insanity before it went any further. They hated what was being done to the Jews and all of those other minority groups, and he was trying, they were all trying to stop this. Well, eventually, after the bombing that nearly took Hitler's life, there was a manhunt that went through the Nazi party. They found this conspiracy, wrapped it all up, and they executed the generals nearly on the spot, and the civilians they put in concentration camps, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer was put in a concentration camp. The Russians were a mere 10 miles away, and artillery from Russian guns was falling all around the concentration camp when the Nazis hurriedly grabbed Bonhoeffer, took him out to the gallows, and hung him. That's how close he was to being saved from this. But that was not what was supposed to happen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was supposed to die. Well, let me give you a couple of things Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about suffering that might help you. First, there is a difference, according to Bonhoeffer, between cheap grace and costly grace. Now, let's define cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, and basically grace without Jesus Christ. If you have claimed the name of Jesus Christ, but have never changed your life because nobody's ever told you you should, you have been the subject of cheap, cheap grace. Now, let me tell you something. I'm going to put this right out there for you now. Jesus talks to the woman caught in the very act of adultery. The law said she should have been stoned to death. And when they brought her to Jesus, Jesus, here's what they say, starts writing on the ground, and then he stands up and says, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And he goes back to writing on the ground. There's been a massive amount of speculation about what he was writing. I don't want to get into that. But all the, with the elders first and then the junior people, they all start kind of filtering away and they leave the woman standing there. And Jesus stands up and he says, woman, where are your, your accusers? Says, They're not here, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Okay, so he's let her off the hook. The one who is the judge just let her off the hook. But... He didn't let her off the hook entirely, did he? Because what were the words that followed, neither do I condemn you? 
That's right. Go and sin no more. There is no cheap grace. You don't get Jesus without repentance. Now, let me tell you something. All of us are sinners. Every last single one of us are sinners. And we are all filthy people. Every one of us. That grace that we receive from Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we get as a down payment of those future glories to come, is there to help us make good on our repentance. Now, Cinda can tell you some stories about me that will curl your hair if you have any. I mean, I'm not a particularly you know, colorful, yes, but not a particularly good person. The only reason I can stand here in front of you is because I know personally what Jesus can do in a life. I know how Jesus can change a person. I've had that change in my life, and it continues on to this day. And I know for some of you, you have also experienced this change in your life. You were not a particularly pretty person. And then God started to clean you up over the years. That's part of repentance, what we call sanctification. The flesh being slowly put away over time and becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, hear something else he says, or even more clearly, it is to hear, it is to hear the gospel preached as follows. This is cheap grace. Of course you've sinned. But now everything is forgiven, so you can stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. False message. That's cheap grace. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Picture the woman. It's interesting. Women show up rather prominently in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Another woman who's kneeling at the feet of Jesus, who is weeping, and who is wetting his feet with her tears and wiping the tears with her hair and anointing him with a costly ointment. And Jesus says, here's you guys, you Pharisees, and here's all the things you didn't do. Now let me compare what she's done for me since she's been in here. And I know that in your heart you keep saying this woman's a sinner, and if I had any idea who she was, you know, he's reading their minds. (laughs) This should ought to have set them back a pace or two because he's hearing clearly their thoughts. They didn't say this. They were thinking this in their hearts. He heard it. And so he said, and you think in your own mind, if this woman knew who was, or if I knew what this woman was, I wouldn't let her touch me. But I tell you the truth, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Can you imagine the grief when she came in and the release when she went out. Can you imagine her going back to her old lifestyle after that? I can't. 
I can't imagine her being set free that completely and then wanting to go back and wallow in the same old pigsty she was in before. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to a broken spirit and a contrite heart. It is costly because it compels a person to submit to the yoke of Christ and to follow him. It is grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is so much harder to live a life of sin than it is to live a life in grace. I'm here to tell you, it's a whole lot harder. You know, and I work amongst young people. That's my life. I, I, I teach for a living. I teach in college. And these college students that I talk to, their lives are a wreck. Some of you remember back to the days when you were in college and you remember how horrible it was. The confusion, the self-doubt, the pain, the torment in their souls. And I'll tell you what, without Jesus Christ, the pointlessness of it all. It's hard. And I see that and it just tears my heart out sometimes when I see the horrible wreckage in some of these lives. All because they have chosen not to follow Jesus. Bonhoeffer argues that Christianity spread... As Christianity spread, the church became secularized, accommodating the demands of obedience to Jesus to the requirements of the society. In this way, the world was Christianized and grace became a common, a common uh, commodity. In other words, here's what happens. The church goes all around the world and suddenly they realize, you know what, if we keep talking about discipleship and the pain and the suffering that goes along with discipleship, nobody's going to want this. That's bad salesmanship. We need to change the message. We need to make sure that people want to buy this. This is something that's good for them, right? And so we want them to have it. So how many of you have ever heard the phrase from one of your non-believing friends, my God is a God of grace. He forgives everybody. How in the world did they get that idea? Well, they got that idea because the church gave it to them. We're default. We, the church, collectively, are at fault for this. We gave the world this idea that God is a God of love. That God just loves you, and he loves you just the way you are. Think about that for just a minute. That is a lie spawned from hell. He doesn't love you just the way you are. His love is for the world and for you. And believe me, there are some serious strings attached. And those strings attached are, one, you're going to have to accept the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. Two, you're going to have to repent and change that life, that which you thought was good before in your sin, you're now going to say is no longer good. I'm done with the old lifestyle now and forever. And three, you're going to continue on in growing with Jesus. Some serious strings. Believe me, there's a lot of pain along the road. The hazard was that the gospel was cheapened and obedience to living with Jesus was gradually lost. 
beneath a formula and ritual so that in the end, grace could literally be sold for monetary gain. But all the time within the church, there's been a living protest against this process. And it's very interesting. The first major protest against this process that occurred by around 800 A.D. was a group of people who said, you know what, we keep watching the church becoming more and more a snake pit. And we want to live for Jesus and we want to live pure lives for Jesus. That was what started the monastic movement so long ago. Monasteries where monks would go off and stay in the monasteries and pray, and they committed themselves to a life of purity. That's what started that movement, was this protest against the secularization of the church. So basically what happens is Luther in the Reformation says, even the monasteries have gotten sick. It's time to put the word of God from the monasteries back into the hands of the common man. Because that's what's going to make the difference in people's lives is the word of God living and alive in them. Now I have eight points, because now I'm done with my introduction. (laughs) I'm laughing at myself. (laughs) All right. And I'm going to run through these fairly quickly. Now, follow along the verses. This is Colossians 1, 24 through 29. I want you to notice a couple of things about this essence of ministry, essence of discipleship, if you will. First, look back to verse 23 and then look forward to verse 25. And you could see there's a common element in both verse 23 and in verse 25. And that common element is that Paul says that this this presence, this presence in his life, this commissioned ministry, if you will, is from God. God made him an apostle. God gave him the message. God put him in his place. Now, I know that there are some young people in here who have thought seriously about going into the ministry. As I was studying through this, I ran across a very interesting comment. I thought it through, and I realized they're right. If in the midst of all of this, you're thinking of ministry as a job like any other kind of a job where, you know, that's a good job, I'm going to make a certain amount of money, I'm going to be able to live in a certain number of places, save your bus fare, don't go. Jesus doesn't need it. But let me tell you something. If there, you cannot imagine there being anything else for you to do in your life other than that. There is no way that you could do it. You could never not be a minister. If that's how you truly feel about this, you better go. Because God's call is on your life. But believe me, church, we have all been called. And I would hope that every one of you would have burning in your heart, I cannot not be a disciple of Jesus. I cannot not be a discipler for Jesus. I cannot not reproduce. Do you understand what I'm saying? The point is, our call, church, 
is from God. This is not a call for employment that came through some offer letter. This is a call from the Lord God himself. He's already laid claim to your life. Now, how you do that is a whole different question. But the call is there. And you need to feel as strongly about that call as those who get called to the professional ministry. Point two. The spirit of our call. Look at verse 24 and just look at the first portion of verse 24. Uh, and that's the, what we refer to as 24a. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. Um, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. The spirit of our call is one of humility. Why? Paul is suffering. Paul is getting beat up. And I'll tell you what, I could go on for the next five sessions talking about the number of times when Paul talks about how he is nothing, God is everything. You are a disciple and you are a discipler, but you are nothing. God is everything. You do this on his behalf, in his name. You see? Paul says, you know, I, I am, believe me, in the Greek, this is a very un nice thing to say. It's real graphic when he says, I'm one untimely born. It's not exactly what it means. Just think of the birthing process and what happens immediately after and you get the idea. That's what he's describing himself as. That's pretty ugly. And he's saying, I am the least. I am the smallest. He had to knock me off my donkey and blind me in order to get my attention. Isn't it ironic that the Pharisee of Pharisees the son of the tribe of Benjamin, who was first in righteousness in the law, was sent to the Gentiles. That's pretty ironic. God has a sense of humor. Took the ultra-Jew and sent him off to the Gentiles. Now here's something I want to kind of put into your head that's going to help you. There's a lot of people that are going to frustrate you in your life as you continue on in, in discipling and being a disciple yourself. There are people that will frustrate you. Some of you may be feeling frustrated right now. That's good. Praise God. Now you're enjoying the suffering. Um, <clears throat> but I want you to think about this. Most of the time when people get frustrated and in pain and they're feeling sorry and they start losing their, their fervor for ministry, they start getting tired of teaching Sunday school or they start getting tired of serving the coffee or they start getting tired of doing the ministry in the, the children's ministry and taking care of the nursery or getting tired of doing whatever it is they're doing. And they say, I'm so frustrated, I'm so tired, I just can't do this anymore. Well, here's the bottom line, get over it. Why? Because it's your pride that's speaking there. You think you deserve better than this, but that's not what God gave you. So here's 
the formula. Here's the pill to take. Why don't you reduce your expectations? When you expect nothing, everything is a gift. And let me tell you something. We deserve, when we get what we deserve, I just want to get what I deserve. Good. You deserve hell. Do you want it? Uh, well, no, not particularly. (laughs) Well, thank you. But what did you get? You deserved hell, but you got grace and you got heaven instead. Reduce your expectations and then you'll find yourself being ready to minister. There is suffering, real suffering that's going to take place. But let me give you this thought. This is in verse 24b, the last half of verse 24. I can take the blows for Jesus Christ because he took the blows for me. My Lord took my pain. I think I could take a little of his. So if somebody wants to get mad at Jesus, that's okay. I'm an easy mark. Go ahead. Take your shot. Next. The scope of our ministry is to fulfill fulfill the word of God. Look at verse 25b. Look at the last half of verse 25. We teach what God has revealed. We teach the whole Bible to those who God has sent us. And it was very interesting because... Um, as I was uh, reading through some of the materials, um, one of the guys says this. He says, um, you know, I, I was listening to, um, oh, shoot, now his brain, my brain is gone, uh, down there at Saddleback Church. Warren. Warren said, as a goal, we want to plant 100 churches every year in the world. And this preacher says, What? He was talking to another pastor who was in rural, um, rural Georgia and he asked him what his vision for his church was. And he says, my vision for the church, 7.2 square miles. I want everybody to know Jesus in that 7.2 square miles. And he said, I'm going with the guy with the 7.2 square miles. Because there's a guy who understands the principle that you go where you're planted to go. You go where you are called to go. God has already given you a field. Why aren't you plowing it? He's given you that one person. Or two people. Or that little Sunday school class of three or four kids. He's already given you your field. Plow it. The question is not how fast you go. The question is how deep do you plow? That's why we go with the guy with the 7.2 square miles. Why? Because he's looking to go deep, deep into those lives. Deeply rooted. The word of God deep down in their hearts. Very quickly, the last couple of points. Our our discipleship is basically the hope of glory in you. 
That's the subject that we're teaching. That's the deal we're dealing with. The hope of glory in you. And the goal of our discipleship is the, is the maturity of the saints going deep. Finally, the strength of our discipleship is our hard work. Paul uses the phrase, I work hard. He's talking about toil to the point of exhaustion. You ever heard that phrase, work my fingers to the bone? How many of you have ever worked your fingers to the bone for Jesus? That's what he's asking us to do. See, that's the difference between some of the pastors I've seen and some other pastors that I've seen. Pastors that are in there that are working hard, that are doing what they're supposed to do and taking care of their families too. And those that think, well, they could get away with an eight-hour day. That's not ministry. There is a little bit in there. But you notice that it's the difference between those that work hard and those that just kind of work marginally. God is not interested in mediocrity. He's interested in excellence. And that's what he calls all of us to. Do you see why this passage is the heart of ministry? It calls us to be people who are focused on the mission, people who understand the scope and the field, people who understand where our strength comes from and who has called us, who our boss is, and where we really stand. You see, I can't walk up to somebody who is a homeless drunk and say, Oh, why aren't you like me? My question is, why am I not still like you? Because I mean it when I say there, but by the grace of God, go I. I am who I am because that is what God has made me. He gets all the praise. He gets all the glory. He gets all of the, all the power, the strength, and honor. Because he is the one who has done it for us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we offer our hearts to you that you might purify us, cleanse our hearts, set us on our focus, give us your strength, impassion our words, and help us to focus on the field that you've given us to plow. And may we plow deeply, Lord. To this end, we give you all praise and glory and honor. Amen.